Welcome to Stories from the Park, a Heritage Park podcast. Hi, I'm Kasaya Quill, Chief Curator. And I'm Dominic Terry, Communications Manager here at Heritage Park. We are located on Treaty 7 land in Calgary, Alberta, a place where visitors come to learn about the history of all those who have gathered here and where Indigenous people proudly share their cultural traditions and tell stories about their rich heritage, history and attachment to the land. In this two-part episode, we'll be talking about the history of Chinese people in Western Canada, and more specifically, the experience of Calgary's Chinese population in one of Canada's oldest Chinatowns. And we'll dive into Chinese connections to Heritage Park's historical village. Our guest is Dale Lee Kwong, a Calgary poet, playwright, and essayist. Dale is a third-generation Chinese Calgarian exploring Chinese-Canadian history, diversity and inclusion, adoption, and LGBTQ issues. Hi, Dale. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Dale, for coming. Thanks for having me. Dale, why don't you tell us kind of, kind of give us an overview of of Chinatown, not necessarily Calgary's Chinatown, but Chinatowns in general and kind of how they came to be. Uh, Well, there's a lot of ways that Chinatowns evolved um, and they were a place of segregation, basically, uh, because people didn't want to live amongst the Chinese people. So in Calgary, for example, when James Short opposed the building of the Canton block in our currently third Chinatown, he was worried about his property values going down. People, um, you know, had uh, misconceptions and stereotypes about Chinese people and didn't know Chinese people. Obviously at the beginning, a lot of Chinese people couldn't speak English and communicate. So these people were dressed differently, ate differently, spoke differently, and people fear the unknown. So it was a way of isolating the Chinese, but it also became a way for the Chinese to access services that they might not otherwise get because people also didn't want to serve Chinese people or interact with them. So it was kind of a multi-purpose, convenient way of keeping the Chinese away from Canadian society, American society. And so now the fight to save Chinatowns is to preserve that history. And so what was once something to set us apart in a negative way, we're actually setting apart in a positive way to celebrate Chinese culture. That's awesome. You mentioned uh, three Chinatowns in Calgary. Can you tell us a little bit about how come there were three Chinatowns in Calgary? Well, again, it has to do with, you know, the expansions of cities. So Chinatowns traditionally are always on the outskirts of, a, of an area. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as that area grows, what then was the outskirts becomes a desired area. So the first Chinatown in Calgary is located approximately behind the current city hall. And when the CPR announced they were laying the tracks uh, along Ninth Avenue, which was actually unexpected. It was supposed to have been, or people were hoping it would go in section 14, which was Inglewood. And the CPR said, no, no, we want this area. So then uh, the Chinese were displaced kind of behind the Calgary Tower. That was the second Chinatown. Hmm. And then that property also became valuable and the rent skyrocketed, obviously. And so Chinese were evicted or couldn't pay the rent. And um, then the Chinese community, they're not dumb. They're like, you know, we need a place where we're not gonna 
constantly be displaced. And so they pooled their money, uh, 10 businessmen pooled their money and bought the land where the Canton block now sits. And as I mentioned just earlier, uh, James Short and others on council and citizens tried to prevent that. Now you have to under also you have to also understand that that was during the Chinese Exclusion Act era, which was you know nicely called the Chinese Immigration Act, which is so ironic because it was about non-immigration. Mm -hmm. But um, Chinese were considered aliens, and of course, aliens can't own property. So the way they um, so they presented at city council and talked about how they were contributing members of society and the way they skirted owning property uh, on Center Street, what's currently Center Street, is it was uh, bought under the names of Chinese associations. Uh, so, you know, in Chinatown, there's clubs, benevolent societies, clans. Mm -hmm. So that's who owned the property initially, not an individual or 10 individuals. And so no alien owned that land. And so the third Chinatown that currently sits has pretty much gone through the same thing with being trying to be pushed out. So in 1960, the late 60s, um, council wanted to build what was called the East-West Penetrator. Um, this was an era of urban sprawl. And so from East Village through Chinatown, an eight lane freeway was planned and it would have really divided Chinatown, which was already divided by Center Street, but it would have essentially eradicated Chinatown. So mm -hmm. that's when what's called the Sinlock Society and other organizations banded together and in fact organized a national uh, conference in Calgary and um, because Chinatowns across Canada were under threat and they were able to stave off that development. <clears throat> and then something happened which people conveniently forget, which is uh, the current site of the Harry Hayes building is also currently classified as Chinatown, which you might say, well, that's kind of weird. How did that happen? Well, that happened because there was in fact a thriving Chinatown community there and, um, it's sort of believed within the Chinese community that as, as retribution for stopping the East-West penetrator, the federal government two or three years later came in and kicked out 70 families, 30, 300, sorry, 300 intergenerational uh, people, uh, you know, grandmothers who babysat their grandchildren while the parents worked, et cetera. They all got evicted from the site that's currently Harry Hayes. So uh, the federal government, a couple of years after the East-West Penetrator was stopped, kicked out, uh, appropriated the land, uh, mm -hmm. kicked out 70 Chinese families, which was about 300 people of intergenerational ages. So grandparents who babysat their grandchildren. And within our culture, it's quite common for three generations to live under one roof. And so those people were all dispersed um, and they had been attending what it was James Short School. So when those families got kicked out, this led to the eventual demise of attendance to the James Park School. And then that school was taken down. And, you know, one could argue that eventually led to the current decline of Chinatown because there's all a lot of older people there 
but not families and younger people and a regeneration of population. And so uh, again, Chinatown is fighting to stay in place. There's always some sort of plan to kick it further out because that is a desired area now. Tell us about the exhibit that we were here. Tell what what will what will people see when they come to Heritage Park to be able to, to see this exhibit? This is actually the third time the exhibit is going on display, but I'm really pumped about this particular showing because I'm highly involved in it. And so the exhibit was uh, originated by Lougheed House, who in their wisdom realized there are no artifacts that exist of Chinatown number one. And I don't believe there's much left of Chinatown number two. And so what, how can you exhibit something that there's nothing for? So what they did is they put out a call to local writers to imagine stories about Chinatown. And so five writers, myself included, uh, chose different topics, the smallpox riot, the first woman in Calgary's Chinatown, um, I wrote a story about a man who donated money that helped start the um, general hospital. And so these stories are explored and um, were presented at Lougheed House with their artifacts, as well as they commissioned uh, Jared Lee Sittler. Jared is a, a mixed race illustrator and he drew these wonderful drawings to go along with each story. And then each story is read by each writer, um, which is available by QR code. And the stories I believe are all also going to be available in booklet form. So you still have to use your imagination, but it's honoring a piece of history that is otherwise not going to be talked about. The display will also be augmented by a um, lion dance head uh, or body, a lion's mm -hmm. figure, and some possibly photos and historical information about that. And everybody's seen Lion Dance uh, at Chinese New Year's. And so when the opening happens on January 14th, Saturday, January 14th, from 10 to 4 p.m., at 11 a.m., the Jingwo Association is going to present a Lion Dance. So um, there's some key sites on Heritage Park where we can learn more about the Chinese Canadian experience. Can you tell us a bit about some of those sites and the stories that we should work on telling in them? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, the railroad is the mm -hmm. beginning, the building of the railroad and all the lives lost building the railroad, how those men were sort of tricked into coming to Canada to build the railroad for half the pay of Canadians and promised return fare home. And then the uh, contractor reneged on that. And so when the Exclusion Act came in and, and uh, 2023 is the 100 year anniversary of the Exclusion Act, those uh, men were all basically stranded in Canada. So they had to pay $500 head tax to get in to build the railroad at half the pay uh, under the most dangerous circumstances. And then they were stranded here. And I just read this term this morning, they were called married bachelors. Mm. And so what that means is they had families in China yeah. and they were not able to bring their families over or to bring Chinese women over to make them brides and wives. And so um, 
families were separated for generations. Also, there's uh, other industries uh, portrayed at Heritage Park. So coal mining is another example. Uh, in BC, there were um, logging and forestry, which you don't have at Heritage Park, but there are farmhouses. And so part of the reason Lougheed House did their uh, display was that there were Chinese cooks at Lougheed House. That's the connection. And at Chinese ranches. And um, cooking was a really good way that Chinese men were able to earn a living because it, uh, there were certain professions they weren't allowed to access. So there's no Chinese lawyers or doctors or anything like that. Um, as far as owning their own businesses, of course, we know the laundromat. So the uh, laundromat at Heritage Park. The club cafe, which served white food, which Chinese people had to learn how to cook. Mm -hmm. And then when they introduced Chinese food, the first rendition was chop suey, which isn't even really uh, a dish you would find in China. But it is now a Chinese, Canadian, North American dish. Um, there were also ranch hands uh, in Alberta uh, from Chinese descent. What other areas? Kasaya, can you think of any? Thinking that we tell the story in the cottage hospital about the donation that one of the Chinese men who died, I think it was of smallpox, Jimmy Smith or something like that he died of, and yes. he donated money to help start the general hospital in Calgary. Right. It was Jimmy Smith. And that is, in fact, who my story is about. And if I could just divert for a moment and talk about my story. Yeah. And I told Heritage Park this. I wrote that story and it is an imagination. So, you know, writer's license and all that. I had very um, little information about him when I first started writing his story. Mm -hmm. And I was also working on a, another sort of bigger project to me. And so I probably didn't give it as much attention as I really now regret wished I had. So I imagined this romantic story about Jimmy meeting this woman and uh, wanting to leave her his money when he died of um, tuberculosis, yeah. I believe it was. Mm -hmm. the, he, and in the story, she says, no, don't leave your money to me. I'm fine. Like, do something with it. So that is completely fictional. Uh, in real life, Jimmy Smith was a cook at a Chinese, at a hotel, sorry, I, I believe almost the one that's on the LRT line, the York Hotel. And um, he uh, learned a lot of language from, you know, customers would come in. So he picked up English and, and stuff like that. That's the real story. So my story did him a disservice, I believe. And also it was a disservice that we never did track down his real name. Obviously he wasn't Jimmy Smith. And in the um, information I received, there's a line and it really always bothers me. It says he was delighted to be accepted by the Canadians whom affectionately nicknamed him Jimmy, Jimmy Smith. Like, you know, I'm Chinese and I have a Chinese name and I have an English name. And if you just suddenly randomly gave me the name Sally Brown, like, I don't think I'd be delighted about that. I mean, that's a colonialist version of history. To say that he was delighted by that. What what choice did he have, really? So, yeah, sorry. I'm going on these little rants. Okay. That's all right, though, Dale. That's something that I don't think that I've ever heard uh, somebody ever say. Because when we talk about colonial stories and stories from colonial perspective, we're usually talking about Indigenous people who are 
either in this area or in my, I'm from Newfoundland originally, and uh, there's not a ton of Indigenous people there, but colonial, we don't generally hear it spoken about when we talk about Chinese people, but that is a, a, a thing that exists in that community. Definitely. I mean, you know how false it is to say that residential schools were a good place and did good things for the Indigenous community. That is colonial history and colonial interpretation. So every time you read, even myself, when I read these Chinese uh, histories, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. James Short, for example, is actually redeemed. Uh, so the James Short part was co quite controversial. Um, Drew Farrell in a speech did call him a racist at City Hall. It is documented that he opposed Canton Block, but it is also documented that in his life he had a turnaround and that uh, Reverend Underwood, who did a lot of work with the Chinese and in his congregation, James Short was a member, uh, that Reverend Underwood was able to get James Short to meet and work with Chinese people. And towards the end, he um, you know, counted them as his friends and had clients that were Chinese and was memorialized at his funeral for his relationship with the Chinese. So some people said, well, then why should we change the name? Because he did become an ally. Well, again, that is not 100% proven. And he did do damage to the Chinese community. You can't erase that. So uh, there are mixed opinions about that. This is just something I've recently thought about. And um, like I said, I've been reading the, the if people wanna learn really in depth Chinese Canadian history in Calgary, the city of Calgary commissioned the Chinese historical paper. It's available online at tomorrow's Chinatown website, which is operated by the city of Calgary. Yeah. And it's about 60 pages. And you can read it and see all the ironies involved in, in the history of the Chinese Canadians. You know, they served in World War One and Two, even though they were considered aliens. They were in fact quite instrumental in World War Two because uh, Japan was involved and they could be passed off as Japanese. They could blend in there and there was a, a contingent that was in Hong Kong. There's a big display in the Hong Kong cemetery to Chinese Canadian soldiers. And, um, and I do know some people who visited it and that history is not known either. And so all these stories um, are yet to be discovered. And this exhibit, it just barely scratches the surface. Mm. It's um, imagined. Uh, some of it is based on fact. The person who wrote um, one of the stories has like a ton of footnotes at the end of her story. I, on the other hand, took the easy route and I completely fictionalized my story. You know, there were not even any Chinese women in Chinatown until 1903. That's wow. when the first Chinese woman came. So when we say bachelor society, it really was all men. When you have to pay $500, which was two years wage at that time, you're not gonna send a little girl to Canada or your wife. That's like gonna take a long time to pay off. Uh, one thing I read this morning said someone spent 15 years trying to pay back that debt. I mean, that's just horrific. And the Chinese are the only group 
that was penalized in this way for coming to Canada, basically charged admission. And, you know, think about that. And that's yeah. all the things that go along with the Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm.